0: Or Happy Eid, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Daid Wahhab, and today we will cover the span of Al-Mutawakkil's long reign and discuss its main developments. Our focus will be on military affairs, the Ummah's armies, enemies, wars, and so on. The Caliph's ambivalence regarding his Turkish generals will become clear. While he couldn't undermine them without weakening the state, he remained uneasy about how indispensable they were to the caliphate. It was a tension that marked his reign, one of many balancing acts that complicate the caliph's legacy and make him a difficult subject to evaluate. Episode 65 Al Mutawakkil I'd like to start with a confession. So far, I've maintained that we must cover this particular caliph in detail to equip ourselves for the disaster which followed his reign. That's not a total lie, but I do have an ulterior motive. Al-Mutawakkil is one of the figures who puzzled me the most before I got started with this podcast. His reign is always regarded in light of the chaos that envelops the Ummah right after. Some material makes him seem like a clueless despot who upset the fragile social balance. Other accounts cast him as a vigorous defender and restorer of Arab power, a caliph who took a brave stand against the Turkish leadership. In a sense, we are looking a little deeper into Al-Mutawakkil to get away from characterizations like these. It is important to set the context of the forthcoming calamity, But also to recognize the Caliph for the man he was, independently of it. Reading about al Mutawakkil in the primary sources, I was struck with how much conflicting material we have on the guy. This isn't the usual type of controversy either. The accounts don't disagree on specific events per se, they just paint radically different pictures of the Caliph. One day he's praising the Turks for their service, the next, he's trying desperately to remove them. He is quoted admiring the prophet's austerity at the mosque and carousing drunkenly with his posse in his pleasure palace. There is enough material to walk away with a handful of contradictory versions of the man, which at least in part explains why he is so hard to grasp without taking a closer look. I was also surprised at how positive the material describing his reign is. It seemed strange at first, considering what would soon befall the ummah, but then I remembered that this is actually a hallmark of oral histories. The fact that a dark period would follow meant that al-Mutawakkil's years in charge were remembered somewhat idyllically. Al-Mas'udi praises them as the safest, most prosperous days the caliphate had ever known. No doubt by way of contrasting them to what was to come. Things were less utopian than the historian would like us to believe, and the caliph had to deal with many of the same problems his predecessors had faced. So keeping all these potential distortions in mind, let's try to uncover the real Al-Mutawakkil using our main sources. We won't bite off more than we can chew, and we'll limit our scope today to the way he ran the state. The army will end up dominating our discussion, so let's get started with the administration instead. We already covered how the new caliph asserted himself by removing many of the men who had elected him, replacing them with others of his own choosing. While meaningful, the change did not go far enough, because the hyper-centralized model of governance remained as is. A small clique still controlled the state from the capital, it just had some new faces. Only two of Al Mutawakkil's advisors are important enough to remember Al Fatih ibn Khaqan and Ubaydallah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan. I misspoke last time when I said that Muzahim ibn Khaqan, Fatih's brother, was also relevant. He doesn't come into the picture until much later. Since Fatih and Ubaydallah will play an important part in Al Mutawakkil's administration, let's take a couple minutes for proper introductions. Al-Fatih ibn Khaqan was a childhood friend of the Caliph's. His father, Khaqan ibn Urtuj, a nobleman from Fergana, had served Al-Mu'tasim as one of his favored Turks. Their two boys spent a great deal of time together. They grew so close that Al-Mu'tasim allowed Fatih to be raised in his son's harem, and it seems they remained inseparable throughout adolescence and into adulthood. It's unclear whether Fatah ever actually held a role in the state. A couple narrations refer to him as a governor, but more weighty accounts dispute this. Nonetheless, Al-Mutawakkil valued his opinion at court and his company at parties. Fatah is described as a man of refinement, eloquent, cultured, and intelligent. He was renowned as a bibliophile who possessed an extensive personal library. Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khalqan was not related to the caliph's intellectual besti. Their names are revealing, however. It's almost like having a Turkish name had become a necessity if one wished to be close to power. We don't know much about Ubaidullah before Al-Mutawakkil, just that he may have briefly worked for al hassan ibn Sahil, Al-Ma'moon's unpopular governor of Iraq. He was older than Fatih and the caliph, and had more administrative experience than the pair combined. Ubaidullah started out as a minor bureaucrat and slowly rose up the ranks until he had full control of the treasury. See, Ibn Zayyad's job had been split between multiple officials after Al-Mutawakkil deemed his position to be dangerously powerful. Over time, however, Ubaidullah steadily accumulated all its little bits and pieces, and the caliph eventually trusted him enough to wield the same kind of influence as Ibn Zayyat. For this and other reasons, Ubaidullah is the one most often referred to as Al-Mutawakkil's vizier. There is only one remarkable aspect of administration that bears mentioning before we move on to the military. The routine expropriation of wealth from disgraced officials by successive governments had thoroughly normalized the practice by now. Last time, our material contained the exact sums extracted from each of the administrators eliminated by Al-Mutawakkil. In the episode before that, we noted how Al-Watak's persecution of secretaries charged with embezzlement is one of the only things we know about his time in charge. This behavior had clearly gone off the rails by now, as the absurdity of one story we find during Al-Mutawakkil's reign can attest. It says that at some point during his last few years in office, the caliph needed ready access to lots of money to build himself a new capital. An enterprising official named Najah came to him with a bold proposal. He gave Al-Mutawakkil a list of 20 names and said that, with the caliph's blessing, he would happily extract their wealth on behalf of the state. He assured al-Mutawakkil that these men had more than enough to finance his needs, even after Najah took a cut for his hard work. The Caliph said he'd consider it, and later on that evening he showed his wazir, Ubaidullah, the list and told him about Najah's idea. Now, Ubaidullah was not an unbiased observer here, especially because his name was on that list. Honestly, I don't know what Najah was thinking this must have been his clumsy gambit at replacing Ubaidullah and other competitors altogether. The wazir told Al-Mutawakkil that the names of the 20 most powerful officials of the state were on that list, and that if Najah had his way, there'd be nobody left to run it. Ubaidullah then found some inspiration in Najah's move against him. He took the list and went to two of its richest names telling them all about the original proposal. He informed these men that they were now in a bind. If Najah got his way, they'd all be doomed. But even if he didn't, the Caliph had become aware that they were hoarding illegitimate wealth. The wily Ubaidullah concluded with an elegant solution to this problem, and the pair of terrified bureaucrats immediately agreed to his plan. They approached the caliph and proposed to pay him a couple million dinar for the pleasure of extracting Najah's wealth for the state. Al Mutawakkil got his money, the men from the list got to keep their lives and livelihoods, and Najah got fatally outplayed. It seems like torture and dispossession were commonplace during Al Mutawakkil's reign. While the main instances we hear about were the high-profile cases involving the caliph's personal enemies, it would be naive to assume the same behavior didn't occur down the chain as well. Officials could take out their rivals with impunity, so long as they remained on the right side of the state and didn't cross anyone who could make their own lives difficult. This led to an atmosphere of anxiety, as the risk of suddenly falling out of grace was a real and constant threat. The problem manifested in cliques, intrigues, and infighting, with deleterious consequences for all involved. These tensions would eventually emerge in the armed forces as well, which will come to face similar problems with regards to insecurity among its command structure. So far, its only political casualty was Itakh, and the caliph needed the rest of his father's Turks, in order to maintain an effective fighting force. The danger of being reliant upon the Turkish leadership was eased by their abiding loyalty, but it nonetheless remained a systemic weakness of the state. Al-Mutawakkil tried to dilute their power in the military, but ultimately they were responsible for virtually all the victories won during his reign. When push came to shove, there was just nobody else the state could rely upon. It's been a while since we've toured the Ummah, and this seems like an especially opportune time to do it. Although things hadn't changed much since al Mamun cobbled the caliphate back together, they're about to, so this'll serve as one last ramble through the extended empire. Let's start with Greater Khorasan, a critical part of the Abbasid state. We haven't said a word about this vast province since the Tahirids took control of it back in 820, mainly because we haven't had to. There was a lot going on. Rebellions, important families jockeying for local influence, and heterodox religious movements, just to name a few. But the governor was really great at keeping everything under control and the taxes flowing west, so the Abbasid caliphs rarely ever interfered with the east. We'll have an episode about it much further down the line. As far as we're concerned today, the Tahirids had greater Khurasan secured. We'll skip over the areas that don't come up during Al-Mutawakkil's reign, like Sindh and most of the Arabian Peninsula. The only part of the desert we hear about is Yemen, where a highland tribe, the Banu Ya'far, managed to chase away the governor of Fonha' and assert control over the area for a while. They promptly became indirect tributaries of the caliphate through the Ziyadids, but the dynasty they established would last over 150 years. While the Abbasids hadn't exactly lost Yemen, they gradually ceded more of the distant province to local powers who were expected to remain loyal and forward their taxes on time or else. The rest of the caliphate was under direct control of the hyper-centralized state. Iraq was the capital province and everything else was governed by appointees of the Turkish leadership. With Itakh out of the picture, we only have three names to keep in mind. Wasif was the new Itakh or new new Ashinas. He was the Turk who ran everything. He was responsible for many western provinces and was a constant presence at court where he basically represented the old order. Big Burha was Al-Mutawakkil's military workhorse, and the reliable commander was tasked with countering the caliphate's arch-rival, the resurgent Byzantine Empire. Little Bugh was somewhere between the other two. Early on in Al-Mutawakkil's reign, he personally put down a couple internal rebellions in Azerbaijan and Armenia, provinces he held ultimate responsibility for. But after that, he became a fixture in the caliph's court at Samarra. We'll start with little Bugha's exploits, which were some of the earliest battles of Al-Mutawakkil's reign. In 849, a Mesopotamian tribal leader named Muhammad ibn al-Ba'ith started some trouble in Azerbaijan. He had a fortified castle in a secure town, and his rebellion against the Abbasids attracted considerable support from the sporadically mutinous provincial population. The governor of Azerbaijan tried and failed to deal with it as did a couple other commanders sent by al-Mutawakkil. Eventually, the regional super-governor, Little led an army to the besieged town Ibn al-Ba'ith had taken over. He offered generous terms to those who abandoned their struggle against the caliphate and eventually won over enough supporters to accomplish his mission. They opened the gates for his army, which promptly arrested Ibn Ba'ith along with his family and ransacked his estate. The situation in Armenia was more complex, so we can't rush through it like I just did with Azerbaijan. It had integrated well into the caliphate. Its nobles worked out their own taxes and forwarded them to the Abbasids, and some of them had even converted to Islam. The Armenians were also skilled warriors, and they joined al-Mu'tasim's massive campaigns against the Byzantines. The caliph even recognized one of their nobles as Sparapet. Armenian for Supreme Commander. While the Arabs and Armenians had a functioning relationship, it was far from perfect. The caliphate could only manage the province profitably if it had the buy-in of the local nobility. The larger a role played by these leaders, the more ambitious they became. They took every opportunity to maximize their autonomy especially while the caliphate's armies had their hands full with Babak in nearby Azerbaijan. That's why we hear about multiple small-scale rebellions in the years that followed the Khurramite defeat. The Abbasids were slowly reasserting their control over Armenia, and they regularly encountered resistance from its people. In the early 850s, the relationship between the two broke down completely. The issue and its aftermath is covered very badly in our sources, who frustratingly even disagree on which burra was sent to bring the Armenians to heel. al yaqubi says it was Big burra, while Al-Tabari says it was the Little One. It's funny, but Al-Tabari's name for the official isn't Little burra, but burra My Drink. Because apparently, he used to be Al-Mu'tasim's cup-bearer, and whenever the caliph wanted a sip, he would holler burra My Drink! and the Turk would appear with his beverage. Anyway, a local rebellion got out of hand in the year 850. Some say a local patriarch declared independence, others that an attempt to prevent Arab tax assessors from accessing some property turned violent. Following a surprise triumph over their local Abbasid garrison, the Armenians got swept away and they massacred a neighboring Arab settlement. Just to their south in Mesopotamia, the commander in charge of the caliphate's regional forces put together a sizable army, but he passed away suddenly and his son, Yusuf, had to fill in for him. Yusuf led the army to Armenia and entered into negotiations with Biqrat ibn Ashut, who was in charge of the Armenian side. The noblemen agreed to surrender in exchange for amnesty for everyone involved. Biqrat was arrested and the bulk of Yusuf's forces were ordered to escort him to Samarra. Things looked like they were winding down for a minute, but Biqrat's deportation instigated a riot among his supporters. They congregated from all around the province, besieged Yusuf in the Armenian town he was staying, and killed him and his defenders. Those of his men who didn't take up arms against the Armenians were allowed to leave unharmed but on the cruel condition that they walked out of the town with nothing, not even their clothes. Most of them perished in the winter snow, but some survived long enough to tell of their horrifying ordeal. Al-Mutawakkil immediately sent one of the Bughas to deal with this. Like I mentioned earlier, it's hard to tell which one. Armenia was part of little Bugha's purview, but whenever al-Mutawakkil wanted something done right, he'd assign big Bugha to the task. If I had to pick one, I guess I'd go with little Bugha. But I believe that it's more likely both commanders played a part in this campaign, and so that's how I'm going to tell it. In 852, the two Bughas took a formidable army and used it to methodically destroy the Armenian positions one by one. I'm not sure if Bukrat's absence had anything to do with it, but the various noble houses weren't united after his exile to Samarra, and so they made easy prey for the superior Turkish soldiers. Over the next year or two, they killed about 30,000 Armenians and forced almost as many into slavery. The local nobility, both Muslim and Christian, were vanquished, and by the time the Bugas were done, the Armenians were left leaderless and thoroughly traumatized. Al-Yaqubi notes that the only Armenian rebels who survived were the ones who found safety among the Byzantines, Khazars, and Slavs. This is the point I believe Big Bugha came into the picture. He may or may not have had something to do with the brutal campaigns we just described, but I'm pretty sure he led this next one. While the Bughahs were pacifying Armenia, they requested help from the governor of Tiflis, Ishaq ibn Ismail asking him to lead an army south to support their efforts. He had been in charge of the capital of modern-day Georgia for over 20 years, since before al-Mu'tasim's days, and he seems to have been wary of the Turks. Instead of following their orders, Ishaq responded with a letter informing them that he would send any aid they required, troops, supplies, money, but he would never leave his capital. Things snowballed from there, and in 853 Ishaq was declared a renegade. Begbura took an army to Tiflis and literally torched the city. He had troops equipped with incendiary weapons, and they doused the pinewood walls, fortifications, and buildings with a flammable oil and set them on fire. Ishaq survived because he was out on the battlefield, desperately trying to repel the caliphate's forces, but he was arrested shortly after watching his city get razed to the ground with over 50,000 people trapped inside. The final conflict we have left to discuss today is the one against the Byzantine Empire, the Caliphate's timeless opponent. There had been no hostilities between the two states since the mid-840s, as the Greeks stopped trying their luck against the Turkish armies following successive defeats. The Caliphate similarly let up on the summer raids against them, though mainly because the action happened to be elsewhere at the moment. Although the Abbasids were busy fighting other foes, the Aghlabids in Tunis and Algeria were making quick work of the Byzantines in Crete, and the Greeks were desperate to halt their progress. Unable to beat them on land, they dispatched a navy to disrupt the Aghlabid supply trains, some of which passed through Abbasid Egypt. Al-Tabari writes that in 853, the Greeks sent 300 ships into the southeastern Mediterranean. 100 ships bearing 5,000 Byzantines landed in al-Dumyat on the second day of the Hajj, so sometime in late May. With its garrison at a feast a few days away, the Greeks looted its stores, kidnapped women, and burnt down pretty much everything they could – ports, mosques, churches, towers – whatever they could set on fire. They spent two days harassing its people and destroying its infrastructure, then got away without a scratch. The Byzantines may have undertaken similar campaigns over the next couple years, as we do find narrations claiming as much in our sources, but the details are sketchy. The Caliphate no longer had a navy, and they left it up to resourceful pirates and privateers to keep the Ummah's shores safe from would-be invaders. These were usually enough to deter ships or small fleets, but they couldn't be expected to face up to an imperial armada. The cities that suffered from Byzantine attacks were El dumyat Ustum, and al-Farama, all on the Nile Delta. So this naval warfare took place in 853 and 854. What came after was a flurry of military activity from both sides. The caliphate's annual raids grew more vigorous, but their foes weren't the pushovers they once were. On Eid of 855, a prisoner exchange took place between the two empires. The Byzantines had over 20,000 Muslim captives, but they executed the 12,000 who refused to convert to Christianity and presumably traded away the rest. Then in 856, the Greeks attacked Shimshat, and made it all the way to Amid in Armenia, taking almost 10,000 new prisoners. The caliphate's forces failed to meet their swift invasion, and so in response the commander of Tarsus was asked to lead a winter raid that year. One more prisoner exchange is noted shortly after. In 857, al-Mutawakkil tasked Big Buga with managing the caliphate's long border with the empire. The veteran general lived up to his reputation, and we only hear about a single Greek incursion throughout the rest of the Caliph's reign, a relatively minor assault on Smaysat in 858. The Ummah's forces still went on annual raids, and the two most important cities from which they attacked the Byzantines were Tarsus and Malatia. You can find all these towns on the map I'll post with this episode's page on thecaliphs.com. It's interesting to note that the hero of Tarsus, Ali ibn Yahya, was of Armenian extraction, and the hero of Malatya, Omar al aqta was an Arab from Mesopotamia. These two were really big deals in their locales and were admired across the caliphate. But because they weren't part of the Turkish club, they could never break into the caliphate's armies like Wasif or the Bughas. This takes us into our last theme for the day. Al-Mutawakkil's attempts and failure at reducing the Turkish monopoly over the military. It's clear from all we've covered so far that he relied on them for pretty much every important fight he had to win. He did sometimes try sending other armies, but their performance was almost always disappointing. Instead of presenting him with ready alternatives, these forces only proved to all observers that how indispensable the Turks really were. Al-Mutawakkil often ordered his officials in distant provinces to form local armies. He tried to recruit Armenians, Egyptians, and Kurds, but these forces never reached a quantity or quality that could rival the Turks. The most overt action the caliph took against the old guard was his attempts to move the capital out of Samarra. Such a step threatened their standing and power in serious ways. It would cost them access to the caliph, and their lands would instantly become worthless, depriving them of a significant source of revenue. He may have tried going to Medein, ancient Ctesiphon, royal capital of the Sassanids, but if that's true, it was a half-hearted attempt that didn't take. The real move came late in his reign when he announced that Damascus would once again become the capital of the caliphate. It took over three months to transfer the whole court, and despite all the effort put into the relocation, the whole thing flopped and was abandoned that same year. Some narrations say that it was because of plague, others that the caliph simply didn't like the weather, but the only explanations that make sense are the ones that stress how aggrieved the Turks were. They rioted in Samarra and refused to cooperate or negotiate until the caliph returned to the city. Although the Turks managed to thwart Al-Mutawakkil's plans for Syria, the caliph persevered closer to home. In 859 he tried again, this time just north of Samarra. He built a huge mosque with a distinctive minaret, some palaces and and other amenities one could expect to find in a royal capital. I'll upload a map and some pictures, but don't get too excited. The new development never really got its chance to shine. The Caliph died only two years later in 861, and the uncompleted city was abandoned as the situation took a sharp turn towards the worst. I understand and support al-Mutawakkil's aim to minimize the role played by the Turks in his military, but I remain totally unconvinced by the feeble attempts he made at addressing the issue. His elimination of Itakh at the outset of his reign was a promising start, but it didn't change anything as Itakh's men were simply reassigned to units led by other Turks. The caliph made extensive use of these armies as well so it's almost like he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Considering their influence, it would have been difficult to disarm the Turks in a time of undisturbed peace. But with all the wars and rebellions during al-Mutawakkil's reign, they had ample opportunities to prove how essential they were, making the prospect of their removal a virtual impossibility. In my view, the caliph's reputation as a reformer is unmerited. I'm not just talking about his inability to fix the dire problems inherent in the state. What truly disappointed me was his uncreative approach to effecting this much-needed transformation. It's kind of like what I said about the administration. All he did was replace people he didn't like with those he did. He tried to do the same with the military. Al-Mutawakkil simply searched for ready sources of warriors who could immediately fill in for the Turks this was crazy unrealistic for a couple obvious reasons. First of all, armies aren't naturally occurring congregations of people waiting for some sovereign to boss them around. It takes a lot of time, effort, and money to raise an army. And if you needed them to be as good as the Turks, it was going to take years of training and first-hand battle experience on top of all that. Secondly, It's not like the Turks were just going to sit idly by as the Caliph actively promoted their replacement. Unlike with bureaucrats, their power didn't simply derive from the Caliph's say-so. They couldn't be escorted out by armed guards. They were the armed guards. Trying to find other men to serve in the armies was a reasonable place to start, but Al-Mutawakkil should have pursued different avenues as soon as the problem with that plan became apparent. I believe he would have had much more success trying to divide and conquer the Turks instead of replacing them. A cunning caliph should have been able to play off the many eager commanders against one another. Besides, the Turks were never as united as when al-Mutawakkil tried to walk away from them wholesale. Their tantrum following his move to Damascus was the first and only time they disobeyed, and it wasn't because they thought they could boss the caliph around. It was because they desperately needed him to justify their very existence. I've been avoiding the term slave-soldier because I think it hurts more than it helps. But at this juncture, it is critical to remember that these men had no ties to the caliphate outside of their relationship to the caliph. Unlike the first eastern transplants into the region, the Khurasaniyyah, who became the Abnab, the Turks never integrated into the wider culture. The Abna' were granted lands just outside Al-Mansur's round city, an area that grew to become Baghdad, a capital in the full sense of the word. Before long, it boasted residents from every corner of the caliphate. Although the Abna' were originally regarded as outsiders, their prominence during the early Abbasid dynasty meant they were eventually accepted by all, even the Arabs. The isolation of Samarra as a military capital meant that the Turks never got the same opportunity. They needed the Caliph just as much as he needed them, if not more. They had become a self-perpetuating military caste, and the Caliph was their only tether to the state they lived and died for. This was a long episode. I hope I didn't lose you somewhere along the way. We still have a couple more to go on this Caliph, but I'm glad we gave this one pole position, as al-Mutawakkil's relationship with the military is probably the subject that gets the most attention and commentaries on the man. A surprisingly close second is the caliph's religious views, and his unexpected and vigorous interventions on that front forever changed the relationship between state and religion. Join me next time so we can discuss what they were and what impact they had on the ummah. Here on the Caliph's. The rise and fall of Arab power.